0: I'm a little bit jealous to, to admit, you know, <laughs> yeah. we, we got, we got big, you know, bigger bodied Midwestern whitetails, but we got about a two week window in which activity is really great, you know, from, from Halloween to the 15th of, of November and across the South, depending upon where you are, you might have a month or two um, if you have the opportunity to, to explore and, and, and hunt in a, in a few different places. And so that certainly lengthens the time in which the quality of hunting is good.
1: Hey guys, welcome to the National Deer Association's Deer Season 365 podcast. I'm your host, Brian Grossman, and we have officially flipped the page on on another year here. Uh, Welcome to 2023. Uh, I don't know about you guys, but I'm officially suffering from a little deer oppression here as the Georgia season wrapped up this past weekend. Um, Man, it's always crazy to me how long it seems to take deer season to get here, you know, all the preparation and all the waiting. And then once it does, boy, it's just, uh, in the blink of an eye, it seems like the sun setting on the last day. Uh, but, but that's okay. Now uh, I'll take off a few days here to kind of, uh, reflect on the season and just kind of go, go back through my notes from deer season and, and, and mourn a little bit, I guess. And then, Hey, it, it's time to start preparing for that next one. Um, I have a a lot of work I want to get done here on my little property before next season. That's going to keep me busy. In addition to you know, hopefully getting out doing some shed hunting, doing some postseason scouting on some of the local tracks of public land here around me, and uh, you know, eventually transitioning into some fishing and, and turkey hunting once the weather warms up a little bit. So, plenty of work to get done in the coming months and. I know some of you are still out there plugging away, still trying to, to fill a deer tag or two in your state. So for those of you who are, are still at it, um, good luck. Enjoy those those last days of, of the remaining deer season. And I hope each and every one of you finish, finish strong out there. Uh, on, on that note, we got a really interesting episode lined up for you this week. Uh, we're going to be talking with wildlife biologist Jason Sumner. About some research that he was involved in during his time at Mississippi State University, looking at some of the science and reasoning behind the odd rut timings in the southeastern U.S., uh, Jason explains, you know, why most of the country sees a a similar, you know, mid-November, early to mid-November whitetail rut, uh, why the southern states have a little more flexibility in that timing, and why some of the states here in the deep south. You know, one area is rut, maybe a month or two different from the deer, just, you know, right over the county line. Uh, just, uh, you know, it seems to be in some places, just almost a random patchwork of these rut dates. And Jason does a great job of diving into that and and explaining it in a way that, uh, you know, even, even us old deer hunters can understand. So uh, d- just a wealth of knowledge. I know you guys are going to enjoy that conversation, so I hope you'll stick around for that. Uh, Before we get started, though, this episode of Deer Season 365 is brought to you by our friends at Land Trust. Uh, Land Trust is a recreation access network that connects hunters with landowners to provide access to private land all over the country. Uh, You can kind of think of it as the Airbnb of the deer hunting world. Uh, Pretty neat concept. And hey, this is a great time to start planning for those 2023 trips uh, before all, all those good dates are booked up. Uh, and for every deer hunting trip booked through Land Trust, they'll make a $10 donation back to the National Deer Association. So it's pretty cool of them. Not only are you getting a, a great, unique hunting trip, but you're also giving back to conservation in the process. So you can explore Land Trust's 500,000 plus acres of, of ranch and farmland to find your next deer adventure today. Just visit LandTrust.com. Hey, one more thing before we jump on the phone here with Jason. Uh, We're kind of headed into that legislative season, uh, both at the national and a lot of state levels across the country. And that means a lot of hunting and conservation-related legislation is going to be introduced and and discussed and voted on here over the next few months. So if that's something you want to keep track of, what's happening in your state, and and I hope you do, we all should, thats something we should all keep up with, Um, you can head over to our website at deerassociation.com slash newsletter and get signed up for our email list. Um, We're not going to spam up your inbox. You'll just get a weekly newsletter from us with our latest content. And then, you know, we occasionally send out specific information about wildlife and hunting policy that's happening in your area or on the national level. So you can you can get active in that and uh, voice your your opinions and concerns to your legislators Um, And of course, you can always opt out of these emails at any time. Every email we send out has an unsubscribe link right at the bottom. So we make it very easy to do that if you decide it's not for you. Uh, But our email list is absolutely the best way to stay informed about the latest deer hunting and deer management and policy news and information. So be sure to take advantage of that. And uh, with that, we're going to jump on the phone here with Jason Sumner to talk about the science behind the south's odd rut timing. Hey, Jason, uh, before we dive into, you know, some of this talk about the, the South's odd rut timing, uh, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself and, and maybe what kind of led you down this, this pathway to a uh, career in wildlife management? Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for having me on, Brian. I look forward to the, to the conversation. But no,
0: I'm, I'm a Missouri native. Um, grew up like, you know, many folks in the wildlife field hunting and fishing and, and, Chasing coon dogs through the, through the woods with my dad. And, um, that certainly stimulated a, a great interest in, in the outdoors and, and wildlife management. So I had a chance to attend University of Missouri, got a bachelor's degree there and then took a journey south to Mississippi State to work with Steve Damaris and Bronson Strickland, and uh, Randy De Young, some names that are certainly familiar to, to folks in the, in the whitetail world. Um, spent a little time in Texas uh, working there with with some researchers, and then in 2008, kind of got the chance to to return home here to Missouri and and be a private landstir biologist, um, which which lasted about a year and a half. We found CWD, and uh, oh. folks, the the rest is kind of history. You know, your dream job kind of turns into to not exactly what you had envisioned it <laughs> to be, um, yeah. but certainly created some opportunities and. Um, 2010, I formally took over the, the deer management program here. And um, since that time, I've, I've had the opportunity to lead our wildlife division, I led our science division uh, for, for a short period of time. And then more recently got promoted to, to deputy director. So leading, you know, about a thousand staff that are on the resource management side of the Missouri Department of Conservation. Okay.
1: Yeah, that's a, We definitely won't get into it here today, but that, that's that would be a good topic for a, a future episode is is the uh man, the challenges that an agency faces once it does discover CWD because man, it's I, I yeah. don't I don't envy you guys, you know, when when that when that goes down. Um,
0: it's, yeah, uh, I, you know.
1: so I tell folks that
0: you know, there's the state fish and wildlife agency before CWD and there's the state fish and wildlife agency after. Um, it just really changes all of the, the work and the focus and the attention that, that goes into it. But that's not what we're here to talk about today. <laughs> no, so, no. yeah,
1: I'm, I'm with you. We'll talk about that at some other time. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, I guess on to the, onto the really important question. Have, have you had any time to get out and, and do any deer hunting this fall? I have. I,
0: I That's one thing I do try to do is make sure you tar- carve out time to you know sharpen the saw and spend some time in a tree. You know, I'll tell you, here's been a pretty bit of a challenging fall for those of us that, that hunt primarily in the southern half of Missouri. We have had probably a historic acorn crop and and so food is very very abundant and deer sightings while deer numbers are strong uh deer sightings have been super <laughs> challenging so got a couple deer in the freezer but um certainly hope to get back out our our alternative methods portion opens up um on Christmas Eve and so we'll be doing some 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 hunting with the muzzleloader between Christmas and New Year's Well, good deal Ho- hopefully the uh the weather will
1: cooperate <laughs>
0: Yeah, it was a little bit of a dramatic change here in the last couple of days to to wake up to weather in the teens
1: and blowing snow. Yeah, absolutely. Well, so I guess, you know, my boss, Lindsey Thomas Jr., did an article for our magazine and and website a while back about the South's odd rut. And that's kind of what spawned this idea for this podcast. And of course, much of that article was based on research that you had done. While at Mississippi State University, so that's why i wanted to to get you on here um but but before we dive into kind of the the heart of your research, can you first touch on i mean you know we're gonna talk about these these odd rut timings in the south but but why don't we see something similar to that you know in the more northern latitudes of the country why Why is it that you know we have this pretty narrow window? Uh, of rut dates in, in that early to mid November timeframe for, you know, the majority of the country. Yeah.
0: You know, so timing of reproduction in, in any animal, um, you know, regardless of, you know, whether it's a bird or a mammal, um, is really intended to, to put offspring in a spot where they have the be born at a time when they have the greatest chance of, of surviving. And so really what you're, you're doing with a with a white-tailed deer is you're backing yourself up 200 days to say, okay, this fawn's going to hit the ground, and in what conditions is it going to hit the ground? Um, you know, for the mother to support it, but then also, you know, some environmental conditions that are certainly going to impact life, and so, you know, really in most mid to, to northern latitudes, that that really means that you want a fawn hitting the ground sometime late spring after green up, they've got lots of, lots of time to grow, gain some body mass before, you know, winter sets in. And so, so that really tightens down the window in which breeding can or should occur to, to really ensure survival. So when you're talking, you know, these mid latitudes, you know, I'd say Northern Arkansas, Tennessee, kind of that line on North you know you're starting to get into you know a lot more seasonal variation that that certainly impacts um, survival. So in most cases you know, mid to upper latitudes you see you know that early to mid November peak of of the rut so that fawns are hitting the ground in 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 May um you know at at the latest early June which gives them the chance to to have some body mass to survive the winter. Um,
1: yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and it's it's not just uh you know the I guess temperatures either that that can impact those traditional breeding dates. I, I think and correct me if I'm wrong here, but I think, you know, in the case of of deer down in the Everglades, um it's actually like seasonal flooding and, and water levels that that kind of dictate that, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. If you look at you look
0: at the variation of breeding dates in, in Florida and even down into Columbia. So, you know, there's a the red brocket deer um, down in South stretches down into South America, and it shows a very similar pattern in which the the breeding season actually kind of occurs right before the typical monsoon, or you know, in in North America, we think about it as the hurricane season. So that you know, very similarly, fawns are are hitting the ground after that occurs but long enough before it that they are large enough to escape, you know, potential historic flooding kinds of things that happen during those extensive rain events. And so, yeah, it's certainly it's an environmental um, driver to the timing of, of when that reproduction
1: occurs. Yeah. I kind of, I kind of laugh to myself sometimes when you hear people talking about, you know, you'll have a little warm spell during the those typical breeding dates and people are worried that, you know the rut's going to come to a screeching halt because the the temperatures are a little warmer. And then I think of those those deer down in the Everglades that are that are breeding. What in like August? Um, yeah, it's so. I don't think the, right. <laughs> the temperatures yeah. are necessarily. Yeah, you hear. Yeah, so right. There's so many
0: anecdotes around factors that that drive um, the rut, and you know, really, what it is, it's factors that drive you know deer movement. Um, particularly during daylight hours, we've, we've done extensive work on, you know, in the wildlife community, the, you know, work on historically looking at reproductive timing year after year after year. And, and you can go back, you know, a couple of decades here in Missouri and, and, and literally the, the peak of breeding fluctuates somewhere between November 10th and November 14th, um those things just really don't don't have an impact on the actual timing of, of conception, but they, they certainly do have an effect on, you know, deer movement, deer activity, which hunters perceive is having an impact on the rut.
1: Right. Yeah. Well, kind of getting back to your research there at Mississippi state, can you talk a little bit about, you know, what, I guess, what that entailed? I mean, what, what, questions I guess were you trying to answer and and how was that study kind of conducted I guess yeah so a little bit of background
0: I, I would say that you know folks like Joe Hamilton Larry Marchington, um, and others you know had had been looking at the impacts of sex ratio and age structure on deer populations and for for a number of decades had been you know sort of recognizing some of the challenges that especially southern populations were, were having. And and what what really stimulated the work was that as they attempted to kind of balance sex ratios, tried to reduce some of this really early buck harvest that was happening before the breeding season, they were noticing that in some places you'd have um two peaks, right? Two peaks to the to the timing of reproduction. And really part of that was was that they were removing a, a high proportion of the buck segment of the population. And so you would have um, the typical peak of breeding and then those does that were missed because there simply weren't enough bucks to breed them. And then 28 days later or so, you'd get another peak. So early deer managers in the South were were trying to balance those sex ratios, balance populations to pull those, those together. And so there were some places still that were being managed um, in that you know, quality, it really gave rise to quality deer management mindset, but so there are places in the South where, where that was occurring and breeding dates were, you know, relatively tight at a specific, you know, location, but they were starting to notice that, okay, but 20 or 30 miles down the road, we're getting these peak conception dates that, you know, that are a month later or a month earlier. And so what in the world was going on? Again, like I mentioned, some of the you know deer demographic things, the sex ratio had been largely corrected, and and when they would collect fetuses, they would just see this single you know kind of peak in breeding, which we would which would indicate a, a healthy deer population. And so they really started to ask the question of what might be driving that. Some work that was was being done at Mississippi State over some captive deer at the time. They had some deer from from Michigan um, that were was in the captive facility there at, at Mississippi State. And, and they had noticed that those deer weren't breeding at the same time as deer that were of, of kind of local origin or presumed to be local origin. So it really started to raise this question of did the translocations that occurred throughout much of the 50s and 60s in the southeast You know, transplant some of those deer that were responding to to the environmental conditions in a different way, and so that's where, yeah, my research project, my master's project, Mississippi State came in. Is we we were really going to dive into that question of when we have these populations that are relatively close to one another, and I say relatively close in in that we we selected those that were about thirty miles from one another. um, Why? Were the breeding dates still so very different?
1: Yeah, and and I mean, I guess there wasn't a lot of obvious factors there that would that would I guess really kind of give you you know environmental factors or the their habitat differences or anything there that that would be an obvious you know reason for this this variation in breeding dates, was there? Yeah, right. So in, in, in most situations,
0: the the places we were talking about, you know, managers were scratching their head, they're like, This looks like it's the same ecoregion. It's got similar deer densities, the climactic patterns. I mean, in, in most cases, when you're within thirty miles of, of a population, you shouldn't have the kinds of variation that would result in a in a month a month difference in, in breeding dates. And so, yeah, that, that's where they started to think about, well, maybe this is a historic carryover of some of the translocations. And I, I think it's important for folks to know, you know, it's easy for us to a little bit forget about the history of, of whitetails across much of its range in that, you know, there's a, there's a time when there were, you know, a few hundred deer in many states across the, the southern half of the country. And so extensive reintroductions and restoration projects occurred throughout the 40s, 50s, and 60s, and and it's it's quite remarkable that they went to places like Michigan and Wisconsin where there were holds out holdouts of of solid deer populations, and and translocated over a couple decades, literally thousands of deer from those northern environments into the south, uh, and, and and it appears you know through our work that
1: that some of those populations certainly held on. Yeah. Yeah. I know even where I'm at, I'm in West central Georgia here and we have, excuse me, we have a traditional, you know, early, early to mid November rut where I'm at, but you know, you can go an hour away and and just cross the Alabama line and that, and get right into a, a January rut. And yeah, that's always been, Baffling to me. And uh, one of the reasons why I really wanted to get you on here to talk about that is just to kind of learn, you know, what, why that is. And, and because it's so interesting to me that it's such an arbitrary line, you know, you can cross a state line and it's, it's just a totally different breeding date. Right. Yeah.
0: So, so what we, what we found really was that those places where we could identify that there had been a lot of historical reintroductions occurring, you know, even within a small geographic area, you know, that, that, that those small defined spots really kind of hung into that, to that breeding date. And, And really, what it is, it's like we start out the conversation, those Northern deer were cued into a different timing of light cycle. So the, you know, the trigger for reproduction in, in white tailed deer, which are, what we term as short day breeders. And that really means that once the days start shortening, um, then hormonal changes initiate the, the reproductive cycle. And so they were, you know, cued into a day length change that was very different um, in the North than it, than it than it was in the South. So I, I think in many cases, that's what stimulated, you know, this difference. the The other part of it is in the South, you don't have the extreme you know, weather or environmental conditions that would result in, you know, much lower fawn survival. So you got fawns hitting the ground at very, very different times, but still having a, a really high likelihood of, of surviving. And so it's allowed it to to maintain itself over, over an extended time period.
1: Yeah. So, you know, I guess I understand how bringing in these deer from all these other states would kind of cause this, this hodgepodge of genetics. But most of those with most of those deer that were brought in from areas like you mentioned, uh, Wisconsin and, and Michigan and some other States, um, you know, those places have a traditional November rut. So how come, you know, when they brought them down here, how come they still didn't maintain that, that November rut that they, they were brought from, I guess. Yeah. So when we when we did the genetic analysis, what we found
0: was that it was very clear that that males were dispersing across the landscape. And so you we paired up these populations that were, you know, of really different um, breeding dates with some some populations that were again similar distance apart, um, but didn't have different breeding dates. And so what we found really was that there's certainly male movement back and forth across the landscape. We know you know, young males disperse, they move in some cases long distances, and they carry that genetic material with them. So you would expect over time that, that these genetic differences would wash themselves out. What we actually found was that in the cases of these really divergent breeding dates was that the maternal lineages remained intact. So the other thing that that kind of happens in the south that is a little unique, a little more unique is that you just do not get female dispersal. Female movements are really restricted. And most of that is because over a relatively short distance they can they can find the resources that meet meet much of their, you know, energetic demands and so the female lineage differences that we saw really were reflective of of what would look like different subspecies, um, which led us to that, you know, conclusion that it really was the fact that, that these Northern deer or deer from some other location had been able to effectively establish themselves and were the root of the population. And then something along, something within the female lineage was driving that response to day length. Um, and that it wasn't not something that was necessarily biparentally inherited, you know, from from both parents. And we get our mitochondria and the way we use our energy and, and process things from from our mother that is carried down through time. And so there seems to be some some maternal link to to that response. And that's probably some evolutionarily, you know, significant thing that, that over the relatively short time period we're talking here of, you know, maybe fifty generations that Um, the selection isn't pushing it to to some different spot. And again, like we talked, they they, they, they do just fine, right? You you move a Southern deer North and it starts breeding in January and fawns aren't born till August, um, then you're going to have a
1: problem. Right, right. So I guess if you look at, uh, say a deer from that's been brought down from Wisconsin, if you look at, the length of of daylight during that traditional say november you know early mid november and then you know they've been brought down here to say alabama and they're breeding in january is that january timing is the length of daylight correspond to in alabama to what it was in november in wisconsin or is it more complicated than that well you know we didn't we didn't go to that um
0: level of depth but i but i think it's a similar response Is basically they are responding to daylight It there's there's some different trigger it's a little earlier or it's a little later Get yeah, primarily because we didn't know what the actual origins of these historically reintroduced populations were if you if you look at the records they're they're kind of all over the board and deer were literally moved all over the landscape and so we didn't really look into that. Um, to try to narrow it back down to what that day length that the population of origin might have been, because we haven't been able to, to nail that down specifically, but, but yeah, essentially that's it. It's that you reach that earlier, um, short day length um, at, at a different time in the South than what they would have been exposed to wherever they
1: came from. Okay. I gotcha. And I guess during your research, was there any, document, historical documentation in place um, from any of these areas of, of, I guess, what the typical breeding time was, you know, before these restocking efforts? Or was there just not enough uh, information or, you know, that might not even been collected at that point, but I didn't know if there, you you know, you had any historical data on on how that breeding timing may have changed before the stocking versus after the, the restocking. Yeah, you know, we don't really have any of that data
0: because there were relatively few deer on the landscape, yeah, which is, that's is what really stimulated the, the the restocking efforts and and so it's a bit challenging to say yeah, here's what they would have normally looked like. That's that's why I think you know places like Florida, where there still were holdouts of of deer populations, they weren't as dramatically impacted as some of these other states, you know, give some of those indications that, that there's potential that there could have been some some wide variation. And and I even think along the Gulf Coast, um, even in, you know, southern Mississippi, southern Alabama, along the panhandle of Florida, you know, you do see some differences there than what you do in, in northern Mississippi and northern Alabama. And I think those are probably real. I think that probably is some some historic flooding cycles that, that may have been different along the coast than it would have been, you know, slightly, you know, farther to the north. So I don't want to, you know, have folks think that, that all of the variation that we see across parts of the deep south is, is a result of these translocations, because I think it really is a mixed bag of things from, from glaciation that occurred that isolated some of these populations through time to just some of the long-term you know, environmental differences that occur across the South.
1: Yeah. I guess, you know, you talked about there's, there's very limited dispersal there among, among the does. Um, But I guess you would still think over time that, that two populations that close together, you know, that they, they would eventually there would be some dilution there, I guess. and, 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 you know, have a, develop a more, a uniform rut, but that, I mean that doesn't really seem to be happening, at least in the, the short term, does it?
0: Yeah, no, it certainly doesn't. And 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 that's why, you know, that's why we looked at at um you know, biparentally inherited markers, nuclear markers that that that, you know, offspring get from their mother and their father, as well as the mitochondrial DNA, which is just inherited from the mother. And like I mentioned, there there certainly is sufficient gene flow or movement of animals between those populations to say if we just looked at, you know, kind of the normal markers that we get from our mothers and our fathers, there wasn't much difference. So it would suggest that, yeah, over you know, over that 40 or 50 year period, there had been a lot of mixing. But the maternal markers that you only inherit from your mother were very distinct. And and so at some level these things that you know affect use of um, energy and the way our bodies behave are controlled by again our mitochondria and don't completely understand it. There's there's a growing body of evidence of maternal influences and effects on on mammals um, and really at the time it, it it created a bit of challenges of us getting through the peer review process for the for the article because. We don't have a good explanation as to what those drivers actually are other than to say, here's what we found, you know, that that something related to the female lineage is super important in the timing of reproduction um, that that seems to be maintaining itself, despite the fact that there is a fair bit of movement of of adult males or, or at least dispersing males creating some of that mixture in these populations. But it gets back to the fact that, you know, there, there's lots and lots of research that shows in the South, females just don't disperse. They don't move. Um, there's large documented cases, places like Illinois, where there's fawning cover and things like that are extremely limited. You get female dispersals as they're attempting to find good fawning cover that that gives them a place to have a chance for their babies to 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 survive when, when they're, you know, born in a different place, but we just don't see that in the South. And so I think that's certainly contributed to some of the, the maintenance of these really divergent breeding
1: dates. Yeah. Yeah. There, there's definitely no shortage of cover down here. That's, that's for sure. Uh, I guess I'll ask you to, to speculate a little here, but I mean, do you think over a longer period of time, you know, I'm talking hundreds if not thousands of years, are, 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 you know, you're eventually going to see a a blending of these populations or do you think they're going to stay distinct? Yeah. I mean, I think over evolutionary
0: time, you know, thousands of generations you would expect at some point in time, there would be some level of synchrony of, of the breeding dates. But I think, you know, also uh, another big driver there is that that window for reasonably high survival in the south is so large because there isn't the strong seasonality that occurs across the Midwest and the upper Midwest and even up into Canada, you know, where where winter and, you know, the really dynamic, dramatic change in in available forage occurs. You still just have this opportunity for there to be a much wider range of of breeding dates in which you know a deer population can be can be successful, so yeah, certainly, I think you would expect some tightening um of those but but the environmental conditions just make it ripe for um a much wider
1: window of the rut to occur, yeah, now, I know you know again, we've talked about how. In some cases, these deer were brought down from the north, the uh, Wisconsin, Michigan, were they would have, you know, a, a much larger body size than than the traditional deer in in the, some of these deep south locations. But I guess you know that trait didn't seem to to stick around, or at least that I'm that that I'm aware of, uh, like the breeding timing has. And why is that? Is that is just a factor of it it being um, I, I guess the males also carrying that, that genetic trait? or, Well, yeah, body size,
0: um, yeah, we got, what is it, Bergman's Rule that basically says farther north you go, the larger body sizes get so they can maintain, you know, core body temperature in, in hotter, more southern environments are smaller so they can dissipate core body temperature. A lot of that really is driven by local nutrition. And so there's been a number of, of research projects, one that, you know, Dr. Damaris and, and folks at Mississippi State even conducted in which they, they brought deer from different physiographic regions within Mississippi together and give them, you know, similar nutrition. And you see, you see those body sizes a couple of generations later really starting to normalize themselves. There was there's a project done in, in South Dakota a few years ago with, you know, eastern South Dakota deer and western South Dakota deer. And they saw a, a real similar kind of thing that that body size is really driven by the the nutrition that's available to them um, at the time. And it's not certainly antler development and size is a genetic component to it, but but it is nutrition um, and the availability of, of high quality forage that really drives part of that. And so I think that's why we don't see um, these places where, where some of the historic restockings occurred, you know, resulting in, in, in larger body deer or bucks with larger antlers. Um, that's primarily driven by the nutrition that's available to them.
1: Okay. Yeah. Well, that makes sense. Did, when you were doing the, the genetic analysis on, on these deer, these d- distinct populations, did did that reveal any other kind of, I guess, major differences among those deer populations outside of just you know breeding breeding timing? Yeah, we really didn't look look much
0: at at any other you know reproductive characteristics. Although we didn't identify you know higher reproductive success or uh, you know a larger number of, of fetuses per female or anything like that. Most of that was driven by how in balance, the population was with the local habitat, and so one of the things we did do was we did do a number of, you know, winter herd health checks to to really measure what that distribution of breeding date was, how um, body condition for animals within those populations looked, and 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 for the most part, really eliminated those those environmental characteristics as being things that could have been influencing the difference in in breeding dates and so. Overall, you know, whitetail deer is a super resilient and adaptable animal. And I think that's what we're seeing, you know, is the the fact that this it can be exposed to a wide range of environmental conditions and figure out still figure out how to how to produce some babies. Yeah.
1: Well, as we kind of, I guess, wrap things up here, any other observations or data from from that research that that might be of interest to to the listeners or. Or any final thoughts on, you know, the South's unique uh, rut hunting opportunities?
0: Well, yeah, I think it creates some, some, some interesting challenges. You certainly, I'm a little bit jealous to, to admit, you know, <laughs> yeah. we, we, got, we got big, you know, bigger bodied Midwestern whitetails, but we got about a two week window in which activity is really great, you know, from, from Halloween to the 15th of, of November and across the South, depending upon where you are, you might have a month or two. Um, if you have the opportunity to to explore and 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 hunt in a in a few different places, and so that certainly lengthens the time in which the quality of hunting is good. I think it also is just you know it's it's a testament to the the adaptability of white-tailed deer. I think they're just a pretty darn cool animal, which has you know led me down the path of, of wanting to study more about them. And, and so I think this is just a again another reflection of, of what what can and is possible for for a white-tailed deer population so uh, it's uh appreciate you you having me on and a chance to take a trip down memory lane to (laughs) some work that was done you know some some time ago i I will tell a quick anecdotal story but after i got back to missouri um one of the projects we had going on was a, a trail camera project not not different than some folks had done in the south trapping some deer trying to Figure out how we use trail cameras to estimate deer populations, and we captured this poor little fawn. She still had spots in December. Oh, Uh, wow! So very clear that she had been born really, really late. And we we put a we put a collar on her and and tracked her, and and she did not make it through the winter. Um, And primarily, I think because she was born so late, she never. Never maintained, you know, got to that critical body size, um, and, and never replaced her, um, summer coat. But we caught that poor deer. I don't know how many times she would walk out of the clover trap. <sighs> Um, we'd walk up to the trap, she'd be eating corn laying down. We'd let her out the next day. You pretty much guarantee you were going to catch her again. So oh, she was God. hungry, but again, you know, it's just like that was that, you know, right back into the, this whole conversation, why does it work in the South and why does it not work in, in the upper parts of the, of the, of the range of, of the whitetail. And, and, and I think that's, you know, a bit of an anecdotal story as to why it doesn't work. It's, it's just too hard
1: um, on those young animals to be born really late. So. Yeah. And they are, they are an amazing and resilient animal for sure. And I know it it seems like the, the more we learn about them, the more we realize, you know, how much we don't know. So it's always, always good to, uh, get somebody on here and, and that's done some research and be able to to pick their brain and, and learn a little bit more about these, uh, man, these amazing animals. We, we all love to pursue. Yeah, I certainly appreciate the time, Brian, and our our shared love of of whitetails and is
0: uh one that which should be cherished for sure. Absolutely.
1: All right, guys, that wraps up our interview with Jason Sumner. Uh, thanks so much for checking out this episode of the Deer Season Three Sixty Five podcast. If you haven't already, please consider subscribing to the show. You know you can find us on all the popular podcasting platforms like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts. Spotify, iHeartRadio, uh, and, and several more. So about anywhere you could listen to, uh, listen to podcasts. You should be able to find us there, uh, or you can just go to Deerassociation.com slash podcast and subscribe directly from our website. Uh, Hey, we'd also love it if you take just a second to leave us a five-star rating or a written review, you know, those both help us uh, climb the, the podcasting charts and be more visible to, uh, to future listeners. So, We would appreciate any support you could give us there. For more information about the National Deer Association, you can visit our website again at deerassociation.com. From there, you can sign up for our free weekly newsletter. You can become a member and don't forget about that podcast promo code that we talked about at the beginning of the show to get you a little bit of a discount on an annual membership and that free NDA hat. So be sure to take advantage of that. And uh, hey, just enjoy some of our several hundred articles of of free content right there on our website covering everything from hunting strategy to food plots habitat improvement um, deer management you name it Uh, if it's deer hunting or deer management related we got some good content right there on our website available to you so check that out and of course you can always find us on all the popular social media platforms facebook instagram twitter and youtube at deer association so Again, thanks for listening to the Deer Season 365 podcast, the podcast where deer season never ends.